Welcome to The Pharmacists Are In, a podcast made for pharmacists by pharmacists, hosted by John Papasturjo. John is a Canadian frontline community pharmacist owner, assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy at both the University of Toronto and the University of Waterloo, and an internationally recognized speaker, author, and researcher. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Grindrod. Kelly is an associate professor at the University of Waterloo's School of Pharmacy and a clinical pharmacist in primary care. She has been working closely with public health and first responders on the rollout of the take-home naloxone program. She also led the development of several online resources, including the pharmacy5in5.ca educational platform. Join John and Kelly as they discuss the scope and impact of the opioid overdose crisis and how pharmacists can drive the conversation on the use of naloxone kits to help people with opioid use disorder. Pull up a seat and let's get started. Thanks everyone. We're back with another episode of The Pharmacists Are In. Uh, I'm here today with my very special guest, Kelly Grindrod from the University of Waterloo. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know we've had a chance to work with each other for a few years now at the University of Waterloo, but maybe our audience would love to hear uh, kind of what you do there, what your role is exactly. So I'm an associate professor at the University of Waterloo. I'm a pharmacist as well. I've been a pharmacist now for uh, over 15 years. Um, I graduated from the University of Alberta and uh, went on to do uh, a residency and a PharmD and a postdoc at the... um, a mix between London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario, and also at the University of British Columbia. And I've been at, at uh, the University of Waterloo since about 2010. So there, I, I do a, a mix of things. I'm a researcher primarily. I, I do a lot of research on digital health, but also in this area of harm reduction and uh, helping expand community-based harm reduction services. Uh, I also see patients uh, as well through a community health centre. So community health centres are uh, family health team type organizations that uh, take they, they care predominantly for people who have challenges or difficulties or vulnerable. So we see a lot of new Canadians who are refugees or immigrants. We see a lot of people who um, might use drugs or might have issues with homelessness and poverty. And, and so a whole mix of people we see there. And I, I see patients about a day a week there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. I think some of the the work kind of we've all done out of the University of Waterloo is so important. I kind of you touched upon uh, helping push scope forward, but I think there seems to be this uh, demand for more practice research coming out of kind of you know pharmacy in general. And uh, I know you've done a lot of work in that area as well. Yeah, so a big part of my role right now in the last few years, especially, has been developing a platform called Pharmacy Five and Five. And so I had come up with this idea along with some colleagues and, and uh, over the last few years we've built it up and it's really about just kind of pragmatically on the ground getting pharmacists the information they need to actually do things. So we, we would hear for a long time that, you know, pharmacists are really keen to do a lot more. They, they really want to embrace expanded scope, but then the challenges are, you know, they maybe just practically don't know what that looks like. So I, I know I can do more. I can prescribe or I can adapt or I can renew. But logistically, I actually don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And pharmacists are really isolated. And and actually, interestingly, we hear the same thing from family doctors. They tend to work alone. Uh, They don't 
often have a lot of overlap with colleagues. And so when they're trying to figure out something new, they're just kind of feeling their way through it. And if they don't have people around who are also doing that with them, who can show them, who can model the behaviors, it gets really hard to be constantly trying to adopt new things when you're worried about making mistakes and not understanding something. So we, we came up with this idea for Pharmacy 5 and 5 to just show people, here are some examples, here are ways. And, you know, one of the first things that we did on that was was around naloxone and, and the opioid crisis. And so showing pharmacists logistically what's involved in giving out kits. Um, we had a module that was uh, pretty popular on opioids. So what is a high-dose prescription that you might want to intervene in? If you're going to intervene, what might that actually look like? Um, when should you be giving out a kit? Things like that. What I love about that that program is it's uh, it's like the five and five. It's short, accessible. I mean, I've done some work in the area where we ask pharmacists, "How do you like your kind of e-learning?" And they, it's always the same thing, uh, or your learning in general. They want it available electronically, short, accessible, and uh, they want to be able to access it in like brief periods. You know, they don't want to sit at a computer for three hours. So I think that's why the five and five is so popular. It's you could. Uh, you know, you, you depending on the topic you want to use. Like I use the point of care one all the time. I people ask me what you could do uh, uh, in Ontario around point of care, and I always refer them to that link because it's all there and it's uh, you know it's very quick. You don't have to spend two hours doing that. So it's uh, I'm, I'm so glad you you got that out there. Well, and you you had helped us with that if you remember when we were making it because one of the things we found point of care being a good example, it's actually really hard to figure out what the rules are around point of care. And even when we worked with the college, and I've, I've actually talked with other colleges and other provinces, even for the regulators, it's hard to know what the rules are and, and how you apply them. So, what are the laws around lab testing, and does this technically qualify as lab testing? And what about uh, protected acts that you know does the pharmacist have the ability to do? this kind of a swab or that kind of a swab. It's it's a lot more complicated than you'd think. And so what I, I'm enjoying about Pharmacy 5 and 5 for me, and I think it applies really well to this whole area of harm reduction as well, is, is there's the idea in principle, but then when you actually get down to it on the ground, there's so many little questions and things that come up that aren't clear that actually are harder to work through than you'd think. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned uh, trying to get that information. You're so right, because if it's a gray area or an area where you're pushing scope a little bit, if you call the college and, and the practice advisors, a lot of times they just haven't been asked or they haven't uh, been exposed to it. They'll say, well, do you think you could do it? And you're like, I think so, you know. Well, if you feel it falls within your scope, you know, uh, you could do it. But they don't. a lot of times you can't get that yes or no answer and no one will provide it to you. And it creates that anxiety. I see it even amongst the students when they're on rotation. So you're not... You're not, you know, they're not sure if you should be, you know, doing this or not. So, no, it's, uh, I really, I really think that's uh, an awesome tool. But, um, and where can people go to get that if they, they haven't heard of it? So the website's pharmacy5and5.ca. So pharmacy5in5.ca. And what that means really is it's five questions at a time in five minutes. And you've got about um, seven quizzes per module that each one takes about five minutes that you can come and go or sit down and do it all at once. And with each module, we're really just focusing on five things that you can learn. Here's five basic things to learn about pharmacist adaptation in Toronto or five things to learn about influenza vaccines or five things to learn about proper landmarking with flu shots and, or opioids. Or we've got serotonin syndrome, QT prolongation. It's, but everything's broken down into little five-minute snippets. That's great. So pharmacists, if you haven't had a chance, check it out. 
a lot of great information there. But to, kind of today we're together to talk uh, a little bit about the opioid crisis and, you know, how pharmacists uh, uh, can help manage that. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background. Like, how bad is it? You know, kind of what caused it? Because we, we, you know, you hear about it in the media all the time, and I think pharmacists are, are trying to uh, get more and more involved. But give us some idea of the extent. So it, it's enormous. Um, so since we've really been tracking this since uh, January 2016, over 12,000 people have died uh, from opioid overdoses. We've actually outpaced deaths with um, in the AIDS crisis, uh, which many of us think back to when we remember, but this is actually worse than that. Um, and we haven't quite realized that or connected it. Um, it keeps getting worse, so the numbers keep going up. So in 2016, there are about 3,000 recorded deaths from opioid overdoses. Uh, in 2018, it was uh, over 4,500. This year, by March of, of this year, 2019, there had already been over 1,000 overdose deaths. It's pretty shocking just the, the huge enormous scope of it, the huge enormous impact. And the thing that's interesting about it too is the vast majority are men, so about three quarters of, of people who die and, and who experience these opioid overdoses are men. Um, and it's actually most common between the ages of 30 and 39. So again, that's not something we always think about, but it's people in their 30s who are the most impacted. Um, and of course, you do get the whole range. You get young people in our, my own community. Um, we often have uh, a group of moms who come out and talk about their teenage children who, who die from this. And it can be um, a child who's 14 trying drugs for the first time. But it's also people who have longstanding opioid use disorders. Uh, it's just, it's absolutely enormous in terms of its scope and impact. You know, sometimes I think we're, you know, pharmacists even get confused. Is, is it, was, is it like a prescription drug issue? Cause I, I heard a lot of it is, you know, fentanyl that gets into things on the street and, you know, so is it a mix of everything? Cause it seemed to like come out of nowhere almost, right? Well, it did. And, and, it, there was lots of reasons and we're, we're exploring and discovering and understanding them a lot better now. But, you know, we had a lot of really heavy opioid prescribing through um, the late nineties and the two thousands. We had shifts in our culture around um, saying, well, okay, well, opioids can be used for any kind of pain. It doesn't just have to be surgical pain or cancer pain. It can be any kind. It can be low back pain. And, and of course, you know, since then research has come out showing that, well, no, they're actually not that effective for low back pain. You know, they're effective for cancer pain, for example, but post-op surgery pain responds really well to like an acetaminophen ibuprofen or acetaminophen naproxen combination. But we'd shifted over to prescribing oxycodone with acetaminophen and, and whatnot. So there's a lot of shifts in how we felt about these drugs. There was a lot of myths around if we're really treating pain, you can't be addicted. We know that's not true anymore. And then as we started to become more and more aware of this, this huge scale marketing that was going on, um, these mixed messages, this kind of deception, and there's a lot of investigative journalistic pieces that have come out in the last few years really exploring how some of that happened. We're seeing it work its way through the courts in terms of the companies involved and, and their culpability in it. So as that, as we became more aware of that and we took, we, we started to regulate and restrict the sale of these products. And so we, we started saying no high dose products, um, taking things that were um, uh, long acting and making it so they couldn't be tampered to be injected or snorted. And, and all of that stuff happened. We started tightening things up and, and we started seeing we already had a lot of opioid problems. 
we just shifted a lot of those problems now from the prescription to the non-prescription stuff that people now could get access to. They, they could get access to, say, fentanyl patches when this was starting, but now it's a lot harder to get their hands on those patches, so they're moving to other supplies. So when this, this uh, we were, it's not when it started, but when we became really aware of it in that kind of early 2016 time, 2015, 2016, about half of opioid overdoses were related to fentanyl. So some, you know, almost half, but now we're above 80%. And so we've actually shifted from back then, it wasn't entirely fentanyl, to now the vast majority of overdoses that we're seeing are fentanyl, often through illicit sources. And just from anecdotally from my experience and, and working with community groups and um, uh, support workers and addictions workers, Back in 2016, 2017, when we started educating people a lot more about naloxone and opioid prescribing, people were afraid of fentanyl. They were afraid they were going to buy heroin and it was going to be fentanyl. They were afraid they were buying uh, what they used to call Canadian 80s or, and sometimes still do, which is just basically a fake street version of the old OxyContin 80 milligram tablets. And so those would have fentanyl in them, for example. They were afraid of that. What's changed now is people actually seek out fentanyl. They want fentanyl. So that the drug of choice that people are using went from being, no, I don't want fentanyl, I'm afraid of it, to no, no, I'm actually actively seeking out fentanyl. And we're seeing the overdoses, you know, accordingly have a lot more fentanyl present. I think it's worth also mentioning, though, that for every four overdoses, three of them have another non-opioid product on board. So it's extremely common when people overdose that they are using something else. So that could be alcohol. It's it's very common um, for them to be drinking and using this, and, and hence the overdose happens at a lower opioid dose. Um, but other drugs are gabapentin, for example. And we've just seen with gabapentin um, a new warning come out around the increased likelihood of overdose with gabapentin. And so we're being discouraged from having gabapentin and opioids used together. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. I really did see a, a shift at the, you know, community pharmacy level where, uh, once the narcotic monitoring system went in, uh, you know, the, the limitations on the uh, opioid prescribing, it, you saw, you know, these huge scripts kind of start disappearing. Uh, people were much more careful, uh, you know, the quantity that they prescribed, the strength, the patches you hardly, like I hardly ever dispense anymore. So I could see how that, you know, you could almost see it happening at store level where, hey, this stuff is no longer coming out of pharmacies, but it's, uh, you know, they're getting it on the street. Uh, how can pharmacists help with this? Oh, there's lots of things that pharmacists can do. And so we need to think of pharmacists as this frontline community public health worker um, and really embracing this new scope of practice, this new identity. Uh, so I was just reading a study. One of the most interesting things that I, I think I'd come across lately was this idea of using technicians to identify people. So it's it's not even just what can pharmacists do. It's what can pharmacy professionals do? What can pharmacists and technicians do? And and it was um, what the study was looking at. It was in the U.S. It was that technicians can reliably identify people who would benefit from a naloxone kit, for example. And we know that the majority of people who would benefit from a naloxone kit aren't being offered one. So um, there was one study I was reading that, you know, of, of for every 70 people using a high-dose opioid, only one had been offered a kit. And, and this was in the U.S. and a different infrastructure than us. Um, and I don't think the kits were actually covered in that place. But uh, it raised that question, you know, and it's not information that I know we have in, in Canada. You know, for everybody who's really eligible, how many are getting kits? We don't know. 
One of the, the things I often suggest is that it's helpful to have like a little list on your computer screen that just sits by your intake where when you have a patient come in who meets some of these characteristics that mean they're higher risk of an overdose, you automatically offer a kit. And so if they have a basket where you're putting prescriptions into, automatically you throw an naloxone kit in there so that by the time they're, they're, it's hitting the other end of the workstation and they're picking up their prescription, the kit's already there and the, the person who's counseling them already sees it and, and it's just automatic that they offer it. So the people who really would benefit from a kit are people who use high-dose opioids. And it, high-dose opioids, it depends on where you look, what they decide that is. So some places say it's over 50 milliequivalents of morphine a day. Some say it's over 100 milliequivalents of morphine a day. Um, we definitely know that using more than 100 milliequivalents of morphine a day uh, significantly increases your risk of death from overdose. So I'd say at the very least, anybody using more than 100 milliequivalents of morphine per day should be offered a kit automatically. And the vast majority probably have not been. There's also people who use opioids, any dose of opioids, and have other risk factors. So if you use any dose of an opioid and you have a lung disease, so COPD or asthma, and the best way to flag that is if you have inhalers. So someone picking up morphine and an inhaler or oxycodone and an inhaler should automatically be offered a kit. Another one would be um, people who drink alcohol. Uh, and I we have many stories, even anecdotally, I have a... a family friend that we've talked about this with, um, just being given a, a Percocets for, it was waiting for a surgery on a, um, something to do with arthritis. This is not someone who uses substances um, heavily. They don't have a history of using opioids prior to being in significant pain waiting for a surgery and took their regular Percocet dose and then at a barbecue had a couple of glasses of wine and woke up being resuscitated by EMS. And it was because um, they they had drank alcohol and they just weren't used to drinking alcohol or a bit older and had this this pain reliever on board. And so anybody, you know, even casually, if you drink alcohol on the weekends and you've got a new prescription for some Percocets, sure, you should have be offered a naloxone kit. Um, other ones that we often talk about are other drugs. So anybody who's taking a benzo and an opioid, that's very high risk for overdose. They preferably should have one deprescribed. While you're deprescribing or while you're addressing that, give them a kit. The, the new warnings about gabapentin would also suggest that's one of the combinations. You're more likely to have an overdose if you take an opioid and gabapentin together. So anybody taking an opioid and gabapentin should be offered deprescribing, um, but also offered a kit. And then there's a few others that are, you know, if you have little kids in the house and you're worried about drop pills, because that definitely happens, or teenagers may be getting into the supply, um, offer a kit for the first aid kit. Uh, and if you're rural, this is a big one. So we know that it's it's actually harder to get naloxone kits and harm reduction services in rural communities. We hear this a lot from people like addictions workers. You can't get methadone. You can't get suboxone. You can't get naloxone. Um, you can't get any supports. Yet, in the opioid crisis, we know that rural communities are getting hit really, really hard. It just took longer for the fentanyl to get there, but it's absolutely there now. So if you're rural, I'd be even more keen on giving out kits because there's a good chance your your community hasn't been as well supported as some of the bigger cities. Um, but the also the other part of that is it takes longer for paramedics to get to someone when they're rural. So any dose of an any dose of an opioid and someone lives 15 minutes out of town, that's a good reason to give them a kit just to buy them time for a paramedic to get out to them. Yeah, those that's all great tips there for pharmacists. You know, in practice, I. We struggle with this because I, I mean, we offer in, in my pharmacies a lot of services and I always, 
uh, you know, I always find if I don't remind the pharmacists about naloxone, it kind of slips to the bottom of the list, you know, and I think it's because they get pulled in a lot of different directions. And, you know, I've asked them, guys, what, you know, what are the barriers? Like, uh, why aren't we giving these out to everyone that uh, qualifies? And I think, you know, there's a little bit of stigma. You know, you've got to have a, a longer conversation sometimes with the patients and the pharmacists are busy, uh, you know, when they have the option of a medication review, they may choose that first, I find. So it's, you know, what have you seen and, and how do they overcome some of these barriers? Yeah, I, I think, uh, so you say there's a little bit of stigma. I think there's enormous, enormous stigma. And that's probably the number one problem. And one of the things we, we talk about in this area a lot is there's it's systemic stigma too. It, so you'll talk to social workers who work a lot with people who have uh, drug use issues. And one of the things you hear is that, you know, the patients will often leave the hospital um, against medical advice. They can be very belligerent. They can be difficult to work with. But Social workers will often point out the the absolute worst experiences these folks have ever had have been with doctors in hospitals, with pharmacists. They've been accused of things. It's often an adversarial relationship. And so they can be aggressive and standoffish and angry. And, and you know, pharmacists are not social workers, which also means we're not trained for those situations. What I've learned from my own experience, because I do work with a lot of vulnerable patients, is I, I have to be very mindful of those judgments and assumptions. But also, I have to treat all of this like it's perfectly normal, and I have to fake it until I make it. And so when I'm talking to people, one of the things I've learned, for example, is I don't look at someone and try to assess whether they're eligible for naloxone kit, because that is a form of stigma. I'm saying, you know, are you are you someone who looks like they could have a problem? And what I've learned is that is absolutely the right approach, because when you do treat absolutely everybody as if this could be something that they've got, you are completely shocked when you realize who really is dealing with this. So the number of times I've had a grandparent who you know, held down jobs and, and been married and had um, young grandkids that they often took care of and also has an opioid use disorder problem, I have encountered that so many times now that uh, uh, somebody being a grandma doesn't mean anything. And that's stigma because you often think, well, someone's grandma wouldn't have an opioid use disorder. Oh, a lot of grandmas are dealing with opioid use disorders right now or alcohol problems or whatever. I've also met a number of people who, um, for example, might use cocaine for the first time after their spouse has died and, and, and they become widowed, like a widow or a widower in their, their fifties or their sixties, which you would never think, but it absolutely happens. You can imagine for them the, the deep amount of shame and secrecy that comes with that kind of, uh, of choice or, or, or drug use. Um, and no one offers them a kit. So instead, we only offer kits to the people that we think look sketchy enough to demand a kit. And we miss this whole other group that actually are experiencing problems with drug use or at very high risk. And that, uh, so one of the things we've heard, you know, and we hear this anecdotally, but in research as well, people who are using drugs often just want someone to offer a kit. They, they're too embarrassed to ask because they have stigma. They're just, they, they're waiting for someone to ask. And it's the fact that the person never asks that makes it even worse. So I just, my biggest number one tip for pharmacists is just offer it to absolutely everybody. And when you get used to offering it to everybody, you start to do it in a way that they don't yell at you because you, even your body language, your tone of voice, like, look, I offer this to everybody. Can I tell you a bit about it? Seniors, like I've had people who are late 80s, early 90s, um, 
maybe they don't have an issue with this, maybe they don't want a kit, but they absolutely love learning about this thing that they've been hearing about on the news. Oh, yeah. no, I don't need one, but can you tell me about this? Yeah. So it's an openness. You have to be open and you can't judge. It's just education, right? Yeah, and what I found work, uh, works for me is I just get, you mentioned the text. Every time the text enter an opioid script, throw a kit in the basket and let the pharmacist decide after. So even if the pharmacist has forgotten or doesn't, you know, is too busy to uh, uh, to think about getting a kit, it's in there already, and now it's up to the pharmacist to decide if they want to take it out. And I found that increased uh, dramatically the number of uh, uh, kits that we've given out, and uh, uh, I think it helps keep it top of mind for the pharmacist uh, also. But there's uh, two, two options for... Uh, uh, naloxone, there's the injectable and the intranasal. And some of the questions I get asked, is there any difference uh, between the two? W which one should pharmacists give out? Uh, you know, is there any difference? So the big thing that I usually say with this is it, it all depends on the kit you're going to use. So if somebody, for example, we hear in some of the higher risk communities that have a lot of IV drug use, they actually can prefer the injectable kit because they're very familiar with needles. Um, they, they might have their own beliefs about they think that works faster, they think it works better, maybe they're better at finding a vein. I, I don't know what it is that motivates. Each group has its own motivations for, for what it chooses. So they may prefer the injectable kit, whereas someone who doesn't have experience with IV use of drugs or, or needles, it, it can be really overwhelming for the first time to crack. You know, this is the worst moment of your life. Someone in front of you is dying. You've never encountered this experience, and you have to figure out how to use a needle and put it in a, in a body, right, in a person. And so it, it's really the kit you're going to use. Now, some provinces cover the, the nasal kit, some provinces don't. So I, I don't, I think if you have, if all things being equal, both are covered, and the person wants nasal or injectable, that's fine, let them choose. If it's a coverage issue and they can't afford the nasal, but the injectable is covered, then give them the injectable. If they're willing to pay for the nasal, give them the nasal. The, the research, there isn't research demonstrating clearly that one is better than the other. And I, I think this is worth highlighting because there was some kinetics research showing that more is absorbed from the nasal. But from a, a, a clinical perspective, it's not clear that that makes any difference whatsoever in outcomes. And, and one of the keys with fentanyl, um, and it's not the other opioids, with, with something like morphine, you might need one or two doses of, of naloxone to wake someone up, or, or even say methadone, for example. With fentanyl, it's a lot more potent, and it binds to the opioid receptors in the brain a lot more tightly. So you might need four or five doses to wake someone up. And then if you get the dreaded carfentanil, which is the, the large animal tranquilizer that's been also in these products, it can take nine or ten doses of naloxone to wake people up. So the idea was with the nasal, maybe, you know, if it's more potent, it would work a lot better. We haven't actually seen that play out clinically yet, um, if that's the case. So it's whatever kit you've got and whatever administration strategy they they are going to follow, that's the one that you choose. It's funny. We I had a good, we have, haven't published this, but I had a student that was interested in this area, and they they did a kind of as they surveyed patients before and after their kind of their training with the pharmacist around uh, naloxone administration, and when asked where would you administer. Naloxone. Guess what the most common answer was? Hmm. It was the the heart, like injected to the heart, oh. like in Pulp Fiction, because that was one of the options they had leave, they had led oh patients. Gosh. So I think there's you know there's misconceptions like that just from the movies and whatnot that uh, that that's how you do it. But 
Yeah, I've heard both. I've heard some patients uh, prefer the injectable because they feel it will work better, right, because you're uh, injecting it. But um, I guess, yeah, it's uh, ultimately up to uh, uh, what the patient feels they're most comfortable with. I agree. I think to struggle with if you've never given an, a needle and, and with the amp and everything else, that's not an easy thing to do, even for someone uh, uh, that's trained sometimes in an emergency situation. So, it, you know, it seems like it would be easier to use the intranasal, but... I guess you mentioned the, the, this as well, uh, uh, deprescribing. I think that's a huge opportunity for, for the pharmacists in this area also, no? Oh, it, it is for sure. Naloxone, I think, is the beginning point. It's the conversation point. But the bigger thing here is is deprescribing. And I think it's hard for pharmacists to, to work in deprescribing. Um, so I work in primary care alongside physicians and nurse practitioners, and I, I see the same patients. I often see the patients with them. Or they go in and see a patient, they identify deprescribing is a, a good thing to happen here, and then come and get me and I go in and spend some time with the patient. So I'm often working, you know, I have the EMR. Community pharmacy, it, it's difficult. You're a little bit more isolated from that prescriber. And so, for example, you might not realize that the physician wants that to happen as well. And then you might assume, well, the physician's prescribing it and the physician's saying, like, man, I wish I knew how to deprescribe this. And you get this kind of um, mess, this, this um, isolation from one another. So I think it, that that alone makes it hard sometimes in community pharmacy. But my experience is if you are seeing something like a patient on a benzo and an opioid, there's a really good chance that physician is also looking at that every time that patient comes in and saying, I wish I knew how to stop this um, or the gabapentins or the whatever else. Um, so if just offering um, and what I do, so my approach for deprescribing is it's one of these things we say we always offer it. We, we don't force it. So um, it, it can be frequent, you know, I want to talk, like a lot of people feel better when this dose is lower or you're on really high doses and I'm worried about, you know, overdose or whatever the problem is. Or, or chronic opioids, for example, a big problem we have with men is hypogonadism, um, where they have low testosterone, a lot of weight gain at risk of osteoporosis, but also a lot of dry mouth. You get a lot of, um, you can get cavities with long-term opioid use because of the dry mouth. Um, there, there's so many problems. And, and with men, in particular, they can have things like erectile dysfunction. Well, if you can connect those dots for a patient and say, you know how you've been feeling so crappy lately? It's actually the drug that might be doing this. Then it starts a conversation. So that's the first part is identifying and giving people a reason to want to do this. Once you've done that, it's figuring out how to do it. And so uh, there's a great website called MedStopper that I use all the time because you can put a drug in and that it actually gives you the withdrawal side effects that a patient can experience and it helps you make a schedule for, for how to actually taper it. And so I, I'll i call people, you know, every couple of weeks with that list and I'll say, okay, how are you doing with the dose we went down on? Are you having any of these problems? And that's been great because most physicians don't know anything about that. They don't know what the withdrawal symptoms will look like. They don't know the schedules to follow. All of this is really hard for community pharmacists because they don't really get paid for it. And that's one of the big challenges. This takes a huge amount of time. And that's something we as a profession need to find a way to get through. Yeah, tying it to the medication reviews, at least in Ontario, is an option. I think that's, uh, I encourage uh, my pharmacists, listen, if you're doing a medication review, go beyond just doing the education and make sure you're really, you know, assessing uh, the appropriateness of some of these medications. And if prescribing is appropriate, go ahead and do it. And there's different comfort levels. I find some of my pharmacists are very good at doing it. Others are a little hesitant. Um, you know, so it's, uh, uh, you're, you're right. It takes, you know, training, time and, and, and everything else. But it's, uh, 
definitely a, a huge opportunity for us. The kind of the other area I wanted to kind of end on is, uh, you know, the availability of methadone in community pharmacies, because you touched on it when you said the kind of rural uh, access issues, but even in, in, in the cities, not every pharmacy offers uh, methadone. Uh, most will do Suboxone, but um, this it's a push within our network to try to make sure every pharmacy uh, has that option for the patients. And I think uh, probably a call up to pharmacists that if you're not trained, get trained and think about offering a program in your stores. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think uh, I and I've been in community pharmacies that did methadone um, for many years when I was doing a lot of my my graduate training. I would work in a a pharmacy um, on Saturday nights late at night, and I would get a lot of patients who would come in. And the best relationships I ever had with my patients were my methadone patients at the time because you see them often, um, and you see them go through huge changes. For me, I mean, my favorite, most rewarding times were with my methadone patients. I, I saw them um, get housed again. I saw them get jobs. I saw them get married. I saw them have children. I saw them become great parents. And and it's just so um, rewarding because it's rare that you actually see that kind of an impact that you're having. And I'm always really baffled when pharmacists say, well, I don't want those people in my pharmacy. And and you absolutely get, you know, for every 10 patients getting methadone or suboxone, you might get somebody who's really vulnerable, can be really challenging, combative, et cetera. But the vast majority are not going to be. And over time, you do develop pretty good strategies for dealing with folks. And so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's such a great experience. It can be something that doesn't, it doesn't contribute to burnout necessarily. It can actually be something that's quite helpful and therapeutic for the pharmacist. If you're feeling a little burnt out, methadone suboxone can actually be a, a rewarding relationship building uh, role that you can have. But we also know the number of times I've gone into a, a, a rural community and talked with addictions workers, especially around this naloxone stuff. They have patients who are driving 45 minutes an hour just to get methadone suboxone. And you wonder why the rural communities are getting hit so hard with overdoses. It's almost impossible in many communities for them to access this because the stigma is so great. It, it's so much greater in these, these kind of isolated areas. We don't have this problem here. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> and it's yeah. huge. Well, well, we don't need this. And then the physicians aren't prescribing and then the pharmacists aren't giving it out. So, yeah, I, I think what you're doing is exactly it. It needs to be um, ubiquitous. Every pharmacy just does it. it. It's just like any other drug therapy that we give. Um, and it's other forms of that, you know, alcohol use disorder is actually a bigger problem. Even opioid is acute, but alcohol is, is our, you know, it leads to all sorts of problems. And we've got, you know, a camphorate and naltrexone, and we know it has a number needed to treat of about eight. One person can be treated, uh, for every eight treated, one benefits, and yet it's almost never offered. So doing suboxone methadone, I'd say also doing uh, naltrexone, a camphorate, absolutely is a major role for pharmacists. Great points for pharmacists out there listening. If you, you know, you don't offer uh, these programs, maybe think of offering them. Training is available to kind of increase uh, your confidence and competency in the area. And I think with that, Kelly, we've come to the end of our time. I think we talked about a lot of, a lot of great things, a lot of awesome tips. Uh, hopefully, uh, we've uh, engaged some pharmacists to think about doing something different uh, in their practice. And I, I wanted to thank you for taking the time uh, out today and uh, uh, calling in and uh, having this chat with me. Thanks a lot, John. Okay. Take care. This episode was brought to you through an unrestricted grant from Adapt Pharma, makers of Narcan nasal spray. 
the first and only nasal naloxone available in North America for the emergency treatment of an opioid overdose. For more information, visit www.narcannasalspray.ca.